The first camper arrived at the Cinerama on University Avenue shortly after noon on Tuesday. By nine at night, the line encompassed several dozen people. The all-night vigil ends Wednesday morning at 11, when these people finally get to buy tickets to the first showing of The Empire Strikes Back. Do you think this is going to be as big as Star Wars? Bigger! 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 Bigger. And yet a lot of the critics are panning it. Well, what do they know? Are you going to be missing any classes by being out here? Yes. (laughs) That doesn't bother you? No. The Empire is worth it, huh? Right. Right. What are you expecting from this one that Star Wars didn't give you? Uh, build on the character, build on the characterizations, hopefully. When Star Wars premiered at the Valley Circle Theater a couple of years ago, it had a run of 15 months. The manager of the Cinerama expects Empire to make it through Christmas at least. Most of these people think it'll be going strong much longer than that. When they get to the ticket window, it'll be a bargain compared to other theaters in Southern California. Seats are $4 each here. Hundreds waiting in line in Los Angeles will pay $5.50 a ticket. Dave Cohen, News 8. Jason and this is Gabe. It's Saga Year Month Eight. Almost, almost. <laughs> it's so close. Nobody knows what <laughs> is it. It's September. If you say it is, that's fine. It feels like June, but I think it's actually almost September. It's March two hundred and forty fifth of the year twenty twenty. We've all been asleep for a hundred years. So for this month, soggy year, it's Empire Strikes Back, and for the Empire Strikes Back, we're talking about the infamous. Once Upon a Galaxy, 
a journal of the making of Empire Strikes Back book by Alan Arnold. It's a legendary book for several reasons. Its content is absolutely incredible and is still blowing minds. And kind of how impossible this book is to find nowadays. Unless you're Brandon from Talking Bay 94, who seems to run into them every time he goes to Half Price Books. He's a stockpile of them. It's like Scrooge McDuck. He's just sitting on a stack of Once Upon a Galaxy books every night. (laughs) He doesn't even have a mattress. He just sleeps on the books. But it's long out of print. I don't even know if it ever even got a second printing. It came out in September of 1980 in paperback. It, it's kind of shocking it never came back out even in the 90s when everything was coming back out. And it's weird because on one hand you think, well, that makes sense because it, it was too raw and too real for them to put out. But it really – I feel like it's the – it's like the blueprint that the Rinsler books ended up being and even the blueprint of like the beginning documentary where it's just a – kind of no holds barred this is what happened making this movie there's good stuff and there's bad stuff but that kind of it feels like a star wars making of where they are just like we're going to show you how movies are made and this is how it really happens it's like yeah the comparison of this to the beginning documentary is totally right on because it just like that documentary and even some of the ones for attack the clones or you would you could even say the director and the jedi which we're going to get into it. I think Ryan Johnson's read this book a few times, but it's like you're just hanging out on the set and just listening to things get filmed and listening to these interviews. Essentially, that's kind of what the author, Alan Arnold, was doing. He he was a film publicist that got hired to work on The Empire Strikes Back, and he was just... Is it spelled out in the beginning of the book? Was, was he kind of hired to write this making of book or did he just kind of start doing it on his own because he was the publicist? I think it was, they hired him just to write this book or at least to have someone on set chronicling what was happening. I guess. Yeah. Now that you say that, I don't know if it specifically spelled out if him writing the book was the point or after he wrote this journal, they just decided to compile it all into a book. That's a really good question that, I wish I had the answer to because <laughs> it does kind of, I mean, there's a, there's a brief forward and then it kind of just jumps into the action. And you read about like with this book, people paying just outrageous prices for it on eBay sometimes. And people are like, Oh, I always wanted to get that book and I searched for it and it's three, $400 online for a tattered old paperback from 1980, which I've, found mine at a used bookstore in Grand Rapids in the 90s for $2. And I it had that and the paperback, The Making of Return of the Jedi, which I was like, oh my God. And like at the time, I'd never heard that. I didn't even know these books existed. I was like, what is this? And the Jedi one is a little bit more, I don't know, safe. It's not, it's not as gossipy and not as juicy as the Empire one, but... I remember this one being like in the '90s when I got it. I was like, "What? Why haven't I heard about this? Like, this is nuts." I missed out on this book for a long time. I didn't really know it was a thing, and I think just recently I realized what it was. And then, of course, I wanted to get it. And yeah, I think the best I saw you could get like a a, 
a rough copy on an Amazon, maybe for 30 or 40 bucks on a good day. It's out of print, which means it is available in other means if you look hard enough. And I'm glad I finally read it because it's really interesting. And even though some of these stories, maybe, you know, you know the story by now, you've read it either excerpts from it in the Rinsler books or you've just heard these stories but it's just it's a really fun read and I think it's really interesting too because it's like because he's a publicist or just because it's the late 70s but it's just very wordy and pompous and sometimes pretentious and there's just (laughs) there's the filming of the movie and then because it's a journal there's just Alan Arnold's thoughts for the day and sometimes they're interesting and sometimes they're kind of ridiculous and it's just overboard in a way where after being used to reading a lot of very you know here's an interview this is what happened all these little extra bits of just his thoughts and feelings about the film industry and these people making the movies really give it a different feel from a book really give it a different feel from other books I've read and kind of the way these type of books are written these days. Yeah. Cause he doesn't seem especially too amazed with the whole star Wars thing, which at, this, at that time was just this one movie that came out that was enormously successful. He doesn't really seem to care for it too much. Like there's, we're going to get to it, but there's several times he calls the characters cardboard he seems to have kind of a distaste for some of the marketing that went along with it and the merchandising. It doesn't sound like it's his kind of movie, really. <laughs> Which is inter I can't imagine something like that coming out today. But it kinda of, it gives the book its very unique tone and his very unique perspective in yeah, just the fly on the wall telling you what's going on on the set of this crazy insane movie one it's also one of those happy accidents kind of 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 time where they happen to have this person there at the beginning not realizing how much drama is gonna come from the making of empire and that the movie's you know eventually gonna be behind schedule and over budget and be probably more exciting than they thought the production would be when they started which just makes it even the more special that he was there to to basically chronicle this whole experience day by day because the crazy thing was like back in what the late 70s mid late 70s there were no bonus features there were no making of documentaries really too much like on tv like there was the making of star wars but there were a lot of making of movie paperbacks the first one I kind of know about, and I know like way, way, way back in the day when we talked to Jonathan Rinsler, kind of talking about his influences, he talked about The Jaws Log by Carl Gottlieb. That was a very, you know, it was a best-selling book about the making of Jaws, which had its own insane behind-the-scenes story. And there were a ton of them. I mean, there's a there's a paperback book for the making of Rares of the Lost Ark. I have a paperback book for the making of Exorcist 2, which is insane to think about. Like, well, how many if I if they made a book about the making of Exorcist 2, The Heretic, how many making of books for movies were there in like the se- late 70s? I think there were a lot. Probably the majority of them are way out of print and have just kind of lost to time probably. It was a whole thing back then because how else could you get the story and how this your favorite thing was made? 
And of course, there's going to be a making of book to the sequel to the most successful movie of all time at that time. And yet in this book and the research used to make it did, did contribute greatly to Rinsler's making of Empire Strikes Back book. His, his amazing, huge, massive treasure trove of information. And fascinatingly enough, in the expanded edition of Rinsler's book, all the audio clips are just Alan Arnold's raw recordings on tape. You can hear Alan Arnold like talking to Harrison Ford. And there was some story too. Like I remember an interview Rinsler did before his making of Empire came out where they literally rescued Alan Arnold's tapes from the trash at Skywalker Ranch, like out of the archives or something. It would make sense now why this book wouldn't be reprinted because a lot of the the juiciest bits made it into the the making of Empire book. But up until that point, yeah, it is kind of incredible that this didn't get re-released or or put into a compilation with the making of Return of the Jedi and something for A New Hope, like they, you know, like the annotated screenplays book kind of a thing. almost impossible to get to get your hands on and parts because of the 40th anniversary of the empire strikes back what we're going to do here in this episode is talk about 40 of our most fascinating favorite tidbits that are in this book because there's a lot we could maybe do at the the 60th anniversary of empire strikes back we can revisit this topic (laughs) yeah we'll be able to find 20 more tidbits no problem if not another 40. <laughs> it's a thing where it's like every page is like, oh, wow, I never knew that. Oh, boy, I never knew that before. Nobody talks about that story. That's crazy. That's literally flipping through this book all the time. You you run into stuff like that. So we're talking about some of our favorite little fun facts that are hidden away in this book that blew our minds when we recently went through it again. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we should get started here? I think we're going to have to get started. Otherwise, we're going to miss The Mandalorian even coming out because we're still going to be talking about this book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So wh- what's the what's the first one we have here? So for me, the first one, which is I'm, I want to say this is like almost the first page in the book. Um, Alan Arnold's just kind of talking about stuff and he brings up how the impact of Star Wars, the movie, reminded him of the impact of the musical Oklahoma, which I had never thought about, and how that was <laughs> a show that didn't have big stars, and it was just a great show that broke a lot of conventions of stage musicals and became a huge hit, which is not the normal thing you get. You think of getting in a Star Wars book, and, and later on, he does a similar thing 
talking about Charles Dickens and his Pickwick Papers books and how that was like the Star Wars of the 1900s with the technology of the time making it a big hit and all the merchandising and stuff for those books. So I thought that was really interesting. That's not, you know, like I said, the normal stuff you get in a in a Star Wars book. So that was the first one that jumped out to me. It makes sense because I every day I go into my closet and I'm like, well, what Pickwick Papers shirt am I going to wear today? <laughs> What's what's my mood? <laughs> well, this next one goes right along with our thing, our, our theory that Ryan Johnson maybe has this book memorized. I wouldn't be surprised because there's a quote in here on page 15 from Irvin Kirshner where Alan Arnold talks something about, uh, well, what's the conflict between good and evil in the films? And Kirsch says, here's his quote, well, for example, Princess Leia's rebel forces will not do anything in order to win. They will not sacrifice lives. They do not descend to the level of the enemy. That's the difference between the rebels and the empire. It's possible to fight because you love, not just because you hate. Sounds a little familiar. (laughs) Just a little bit. You know, you could maybe, you know, say like, well, that's, you know, a really cool kind of, you know, way of looking at it. And it's, it's also very, you know, to the core of Star Wars and Ryan Johnson gets it. But there's other examples we're going to be bringing up where Ryan Johnson's got this book memorized. He's reading it every morning and every night before he goes to bed. The cover's red and white. It's got a J in it, a capital letter J. Who knows? It may be the last book you ever buy, <laughs> depending on how much you pay for it. Anyway, okay, what's our next one? So the next one is not too far into the book is the first interview with Harrison Ford. And the interesting thing, going back and reading this, is just now that we live in the future and we know that Harrison Ford becomes one of the biggest stars of all time. He's been in so many movies to just see. He basically, there's there's an interview where he talks about what he's been doing since Star Wars came out up to Empire Strikes Back and just how much of a pro Harrison Ford has always been and how serious about being a star, or not so much a star, but being a good actor, I guess you could say. And it's just really interesting him talking about his thought process of all the films he tried to do and the variety of roles he tried to do to make sure that he was seen as a actor who wasn't just someone from Star Wars. I think with the benefit of being in the future now, it's just, it's really fascinating to read his thought processes. And it's not like from Star Wars to the beginning of filming of Empire was that big of a chunk of time. And I, I, it's interesting reading that too, because you're like, Indiana Jones is still years away. Blade Runner is still years away. And most of these movies, I've never seen any of these. And I, <laughs> it was like, I didn't even realize he was in a lot of these movies because they're so, I mean, they're, they're older movies, which isn't a bad thing. And he has smaller parts in some of them and they're kind of lesser known movies. They weren't big hits at the time. Harrison Ford's always been Harrison Ford. I did the Frisco Kid with Gene Wilder. Nobody saw it. Which is pretty much that interview. So that's why it's great. What, what, what do we have next? So next is with Empire, you kind of get a taste of the future of Star Wars where they talk about press agencies hiring military helicopters to fly over the sets and take photos. But the best thing is... While they were in Norway, there was an old woman who skied out to the set, and they were so impressed with her that they gave her 
a huge interview. I think she worked for a local paper or something, but basically, yeah, an old lady on skis showed up on the set and charmed her way into a great interview. <laughs> Our hats off to you, old woman on skis. We love you. You, you, you're an inspiration to us all. If, if we ever get the Star Wars behind the scenes figures with, you know, Kenny Baker in R2 or a Chewbacca, you take his head off and it's Peter Mayhew. Hopefully they will make the old lady on cross country skis with a little notepad so you can have her interview the, the actors in the snow. Next one I had was there is a fascinating like three, four page interview with Ralph McQuarrie. I don't know. I was like, so happy that he was interviewed in this book and just kind of reading his thoughts on this stage in his career. I mean, you just imagine coming right off star Wars and working on empire, like him and Joe Johnston, like really defining the look of this galaxy and just kind of how Ralph McQuarrie just doesn't even care. Like how Alan Arnold is just like, do you, do you read fantasy? And he's like, no, I don't really care about any of it. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> it's just how kind of humble Ralph McQuarrie comes across in this interview. It's so it's so good. I like, too, that he keeps talking about how he just enjoys when he's in new places, sketching the machinery around town. Like he's in London working on this. So he's like going around and just sketching machines by the side of the road. Oh, <laughs> uh, Ralph McQuarrie. Yeah, it's just so cool that he just pops up so early on in the book and just yeah wonderful there's a great quote with him talking about working with george on the original movie too about how he says george had ideas about how his picture should look in fact i think the look of the picture was more interesting to him than the plot the look of the great vistas the alien lands the structures the spaceships the robots the costumes and accessories was of fundamental interest to him which you could take that as a dig on the movie but i think he's saying it as a compliment that he's very, he's a visual guy and that's why they kind of work together so well, because I think we talk about this in the script drafts. He wasn't writing people's feelings and he was thinking about set pieces and, and action and visuals. He was writing about visuals, not about feelings. And that's just, that's the George Lucas thing. Well, and we, it's like every time we talk about like a, an art book episode that comes out and, the, the art informing the story and the process that started then was fine-tuned in the prequels and still goes on today in every new art book that comes out. There's always a part about the artists are hard at work drawn who knows what inspiring the filmmakers. And, uh, I'm very interested in how the, these relationships are. I'll sit and doodle and come up with all sorts of forms. I used to sit and doodle... Say, I would get on the subject of hats, maybe. And I would start to distort the hats, and I would make them all kinds of strange things that came down over the body and, and took off in strange shapes that soared into the air. And they were, in a sense, fantastic hats. And surrealist, yeah. This interested me a great deal. Because I could sit and draw anything I could imagine. So it becomes fun to sit and draw something fantastic, you know, that, that isn't just... I mean, to just sit and sketch uh, something that's sitting in front of me, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a facility you have, but it isn't exciting to me. So another interesting thing, which you kind of get the impression that this was the case, but I think this is the first place I actually read it kind of spelled out, how 
early on, they kind of wanted to keep the illusion that Chewbacca and R2-D2 and C-3PO were not people in suits. They were real robots and real creatures. And that was great for kids. Cause I kind of feel like when I was a kid, I never really thought that R2-D2 and C-3PO weren't real robots for a long time. Maybe, <laughs> maybe till I was in college. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. No, I did too. I did too. I did too. But you could see where that was hard on the actors because, you know, they, we thought they were so real because of the, hard work of the performers in those suits and there was some frustration it sounds like with them not getting the recognition that you know mark and carrie and harrison were getting yeah there's a wonderful anthony daniels quote in the book where he's talking about how he had a pretty fiery conversation with lucas with coming back to empire strikes back where his quote is you opened a door for me but you didn't tell me that beyond it was another door that you'd slam in my face <laughs> so anthony daniels it's beautiful it's wonderful that that's why he only takes cash now that's the only thing that can open that second door cold hard cash <sighs> So next, I thought this was great. They're talking about, I think they're meeting with the Fox people about the re-release for Star Wars, the original movie, and how they're going to have that come out to keep people excited for Empire Strikes Back. And they talk about how because they were filming Empire Strikes Back in Norway, the movie was so popular that it never stopped playing. So they didn't have to re-release it in Norway. I think it just played in theaters until Empire came out. That's my dream. The best place on earth. <laughs> so we talk about all the time, the all Star Wars theater. Yeah. All they play is nothing but the Star Wars. Anytime you want to go, get your fix. You want to go see Return of the Jedi on the big screen? I'm going Wednesday. See you later. It's just always playing. All right, what, what do we have next? Next, there's a, a fun little page where Alan Arnold is talking about Irving Kirshner going to the film festival and how he gives a quote about what the essence of star wars is which is a great little quote here that the star wars saga is pure fantasy an exotic trip a magical landscape familiar as our dreams it speaks directly to the part of us that is forever young and the best part is after that he says of course alan Arnold likes that quote because he wrote it for Kirsch to say. Sometimes I wonder if Alan Arnold wasn't actually Anthony Daniels. <laughs> so at this point, we're still early in the book, but we get some some hints of things to come. And there's the first talk of how Stuart Freeborn has been working on Yoda. And Alan Arnold asks the question, what does wisdom look like? And he gives his guesses of what Yoda could be. He says, one thinks of very great age. Yoda is at least 800 years old and that he may be nearly all head. I think of something that moves quietly, fastidiously, and of a third eye. One eye that's all seeing. We missed out. There's a giant floating head with a third eye. What could have been? And we missed out with the giant head in Rise of Skywalker. So maybe this is two times that Star Wars almost gave us giant heads and we didn't get them. Yeah, the, the Oracle. The Oracle is like an all-knowing, all-seeing kind of just by name thing. What is wisdom? We, we, we cannot know these answers. Yeah, no. Well, maybe the, you know, there's a couple copies of this book floating around at Lucasfilm. Maybe that whenever people are working on new stuff, they're like, you, may, you should read this little book. People should know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. 
you know, Dexter Jester says it. So <laughs> true. So the next one is uh, it happens on Friday, May fourth, and Margaret Thatcher has won the election and become Britain's first woman prime minister, as quoted in the book. And to celebrate her, their victory, the party took a half-page advertising space in the London Evening News, and the message says, May the 4th be with you, Maggie. Congratulations. And thus, that saying was kind of born. Right? Maybe, that at least when people talk about May the 4th, that's the first time it ever appeared in print. So I don't know if that's we should thank her for that or if that's another thing people can be mad at Margaret Thatcher about. From a you know, certain point of view. <laughs> another fun one here is on Wednesday, May 2nd, they started filming or were filming scenes for Vader's Meditation Sphere. And there's some highlights from the call sheet from the day, how they need things such as a hologram light, a meditation light, various scar and wound effects. And there's a great Lucas quote about how he says the buck stops at opticals. Let's get that on a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Where are those <laughs> Star Wars? The bu- the buck stops at opticals. The buck stops at opticals. <laughs> yeah. Get a hat that says "Read the shirt." Well, you know, it's those people camping out at the Return of the Jedi set they were they couldn't wait to see the opticals, so they knew what Lucas was talking about. Yeah, so this next one, it's Tuesday, May 15th, and they're talking about Peter Schlutzky, right? Which he, Peter Schlutzky is an an unsung hero of Empire Strikes Back history, right? Well, yeah, cinematographer, I think it's, is it Sashitsky? Yeah, Naboo, Naboo. (laughs) Everyone has Star Wars names. Peter, the cinematographer, basically becomes known for riding his bicycle on set to try to get back and forth from all the different stages. And I feel like that becomes kind of a Star Wars production tradition because eventually we see Ben Burt on a scooter trying to go from department to department and Star Wars movie production just gets so big that inevitably somebody is on a bike or a skateboard or a scooter going from place to place. Jetpack. A BMX bike popping wheelies. That was probably Rick McCallum. I always thought he just had roller skates. <laughs> Watch out, dude. Here I come. Skating backwards while he's going over the shots for the day. Looks great. Puts on his shades and just rolls away. <laughs> Next is an extended interview with the great Paul Hirsch, editor Paul Hirsch, which is just full of gold. My favorite Paul Hirsch quote in this book, though, is he's talking about like the difference between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, like from an in an editor perspective. And his quote is talking about uh, Irvin Kirshner. Yes, he's moving the camera quite a lot. In Star Wars, the camera hardly ever moved. Therefore, much of the film's energy was generated from the editing. In this film, there's more camera movements and more energy is generated without the need for such rapid cutting. Which, as Star Wars fans, we all like, oh, well, yeah, of course. But also, that's kind of insane. Well, and it's one of those things, too, that you forget how different the movies are because in your mind, it's all the same story and you've seen the story so much that sometimes you kind of just are oblivious to the fact that there is a different feel visually between the two movies. With some of these movies, like The Empire Strikes Back, 
do we even watch them anymore? Like, or is it just like the songs that we've heard a thousand times in our life and we know by heart and we can pretty much close our eyes and put the movie in our brain VCRs and play them. It reminds me of like when not too long ago, somebody was talking about how the shot in Rares of the Lost Ark, when Marcus Brody comes to Indy's house, it's like nothing you've ever gone after before and all that. And how that's just one long shot and that was mind-blowing to me because I was like, I've watched Rares of the Lost Ark 10,000 times, and I've never noticed that that was all just one shot with the camera just slowly moving on a track. But it's a thing. Like, we don't even – do we watch these movies? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good point, right? Because at this point, it's like it's like the Star Wars noise machine, and it's just on, and you hear it, and you're happy, and you watch – you pay attention. It's, yeah, it's, it is an interesting phenomenon because you do pay attention – because you know it so well, but yeah, you're missing out what's right in front of your face because you're just so used to it that you don't even realize what it is. Yeah, the other thing he goes into, which I think is is really interesting, and especially now that we're you know 40 years later from this book, is just talking about how film editing and what is kind of normal changes over time and how he's talking about Marx Brothers films and how they're funny, but that none of the nothing matches and they're not necessarily edited that good, but they're still enjoyable. We're talking about how Alfred Hitchcock would have long, slow fade outs to let you know a new scene was coming in and how even by the late seventies, you'd never have that in a movie. It's always just going to be a cut, cut, cut. And just how quickly, I guess what is hip and modern in a movie, how quickly that changes. That's something I think we kind of all, noticed when the sequel trilogy came out because it was the first time we were getting it wasn't the first time because with empire we got another star wars movie that was actually more different from the original than maybe after seeing it a hundred times you realized but it was now even further into the future movies that feel like star wars but if you examine them really are different because of the passage of time and just what is a normal movie to people and also, the sequels trilogy, the style of it was like with Force Awakens, like, oh, so this is how it's going to be. Because also, by this time, we were so used to the prequels, kind of George Lucas being George Lucas again and not really moving the camera a whole lot. Yeah, but cutting quickly between still cameras, yeah. Well, when people are talking, it was almost like a mix between the two. It's like when people are talking, the camera doesn't move, and then it's just like chaos. <laughs> it's Kiati Mundi and a bunch of Jedis walking slowly, spinning lightsabers, basically, but the camera's not moving. That information that you had to give, presumably, is where our three young adventurers were and their sort of position in relation to the, uh, the continuing saga and so on. How how they stood as the movies started out and what their situation was. Yeah. Also, uh, the problem was also that we had too much information. I see. And uh, an audience has no way of evaluating what information is important and what is not unless we give it a certain emphasis and focus. And I think the problem that we just resolved in the last pass through was we focused the story much more and uh, simplified, sort of streamlined the information so that we weren't distracting the audience with a lot of information that really didn't matter. 
So in this book, we get kind of a taste of the future from both one of the visual effects supervisors, Brian Johnson, and also Lucas himself, um, in two different instances, talking about the future of film and how it's going to become digital. Brian Johnson talks about how they have this basically like a television to use to do some optical effects with where they're filming this like tiny kind of higher resolution almost television and then later on Lucas talking about how he sees that film is going to become more like video and it's going to be electronic and digital this is what 1978 he's saying how that's just right around the corner yeah Lucas's quote I think film will more and more convert to video a more electronic medium the day will come when video will be of equal quality to film and when more people switch over to using video instead of film to shoot theatrical motion pictures. Yeah. And this is yeah, what? Yeah. 1978, maybe 79. And he's predicting what he does in 2001 and two. He's a patient man. Just waiting for the future to catch up to him. I liked when he, you know, was more interested in practical effects and wasn't so obsessed with doing everything on a computer. <laughs> okay. Anyways, moving on, we're going back over to Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford. And they're talking about how they just learned that there is going to be a star Wars radio drama put on by national public radio and in Britain by the BBC. Harrison Ford is kind of miffed that somebody else is going to be playing Han Solo. His quote is, until something like this happens, you don't really realize how possessive you've become of the characters you're playing. Mark Hamill says, I want to play my part on the radio. I'd have, I'd play it for fun. I don't want some other guy playing Luke. <laughs> but I love that for one day on the set of The Empire Strikes Back, they were like, what? Radio dramas? What now? And moving right along, on the same page with the radio dramas, there's an interesting discussion about how, you know, all this time, and there's a, they talk about this earlier in, when they're in Norway, just how Mark Hamill's wife, Mary Lou, is pregnant and the baby is overdue. It's going to come at any time. And they're talking about whether or not they're going to make an announcement to the press that Mark Hamill had a child because Mark Hamill's such a sex symbol. They don't want the, the mystique of sexy luke skywalker to be a dad and you know now we know that they end up announcing it and, and, and don't keep it a secret but it's yeah this is kind of some of the little tidbits throughout the book where it's just kind of like wow I'm, it's crazy that they even there was a day when that they thought about that and like well i don't know what we're gonna do we don't we don't want to ruin the mystique of luke skywalker and i think that's fun to think about now all these years later too because it seems like Han Solo's the the cute one and Mark's just the goody-goody guy or something. But I guess, you know, there's a lot of people who were, there's a little bit of chest there, I don't know, <laughs> in his new Hope outfit. It just isn't fair. Come on. We've got to do something. We've got work to do. Got him! I got him! Good five standing by. Watch that crossfire, boy. I know what you mean. We're going to the Dagobah system. Just hang on! That's all right. Dagobah. What's the matter? You smell something? So this next one is one of the best things in the whole book, right? I think so. <laughs> well, there's there's a big section with a lot of talk about Kenny Baker's life. And as you can imagine, some of it's entertaining. Some of it's kind of sad and tragic. But probably 
the most entertaining is how he got into a little bit of trouble because there was a, a beer promotion in Chicago and they had Kenny Baker there and they advertised it as the best thing to come out of a can since R2-D2. Where are there any promotions still existing for this this beer advertising thing in Chicago where there are t-shirts made, posters, signs with Kenny Baker on them? Does Steve Sansweet have them? Where can we get them? <laughs> well, in between... Billy D. Williams and Colt 45 and Kenny Baker and whatever beer this was, if we look hard enough, did every Star Wars actor do a beer promotion? If they didn't, why didn't they? That's what I say. Chew beer Peter Mayhew should have been doing that. Two one beer. <laughs> have a beer, sir. <laughs> so moving on, one of the most amazing parts in the book is a extended transcript, basically, of a day of filming in the carbon freezing chamber. It's like the main event of the book because it's, you're just reading everything that's going on. Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Irvin Kirshner, absolutely fascinating. And it's just full, full of amazing, incredible moments from beginning to end. Right. Yeah. And the great thing is a lot of this did get carried over to the Rinsler making of empire book. And pretty sure it got carried over because it is yeah it's the it's the meat of this book and there's audio clips from some of this because basically the story with this is alan arnold convinced irving kirshner to wear a wire basically and he had a microphone on him and a wireless transmitter and was basically mic'd the whole day and alan arnold recorded it and transcribed pretty much everything that was happening and it happened to be another one of those happy accidents where it was a very eventful day and what it starts with what harrison ford going over dialogue with irvin kirshner yeah harrison shows up on set and irvin kirshner is like we got to talk about this scene it seems like the carbon freezing scene at least as written wasn't clear enough for irving kirshner so yeah it starts with him and harrison Briefly talking about it, I think, on the set, and then they go back to his office to kind of figure out what is happening in that scene and what they're going to say. Why is Leia and Chewie there? Why is Lando there? Why don't they just freeze Han and Carbonite and not tell anybody? And they're basically kind of working through the how and why of the scene. And it is it is really fascinating just to kind of see the thought process and how much Harrison Ford contributes and just how kind of obsessive Irving Kirshner is with this. And he, like the parts where Harrison Ford's kind of talking through things and, and Kirsch is just like saying the lines over and over again, kind of ignoring Harrison Ford. Well, and it's fascinating to think that George Lucas isn't there and they're just changing the words. Like this doesn't seem right. You know, most famously the, I love you. I know, I don't think Han would say that. Well, let's change it. And it's not, the Lucas way of doing things. And one of my favorite parts early on, kind of once they get to the set, is there's a part where Leia was supposed to slap Lando. And they're rehearsing this. And Carrie Fisher just really slaps Billy D hard in the face. B- Billy D. Williams' quote is, don't hit me like that. And Carrie Fisher says, did it hurt? And Billy D. Williams says, of course it hurt. 
<laughs> just so good. Well, and all of this is kind of building off the fact that the set was kind of insane. I mean, the set was what you see on screen. It's like scaffolding with no railings on it. So everyone was worried they were going to fall off. There were guys in masks as stormtroopers they thought were going to fall off. All the steam and everything. I mean, this is before digital effects. So all that steam is on set. And those steam machines are super, super loud. And it sounds like in the in the book, like, they can't just turn them on. They have to, like, prime them. So they're, like, always on, like, getting primed up so they can have them on during the set. So in between takes, they're, like, trying to talk about stuff and they can't hear anything because those machines are on. It's, what, 100 degrees in there. I think Peter Mayhew, they sent him home one day because he was almost going to faint because it was so hot. Everybody's hot and grumpy, and it just, it all combines into this just very tense situation. And in the middle of all this, everyone's favorite comes by. Yeah, so everyone's, like, yelling at each other, basically, and Kirshner says to himself, what a day. I've got problems with actors. Everybody's furious with each other. Yeah, and then up comes David Prowse. And he says, Kirsch, I'm going to change the subject. Completely take your mind out of all this. My book just came out. I've written a book called Fitness is Fun, and I want to give you a copy. Now, (laughs) just imagine David Prowse is standing there in the Vader suit. Kirsch is freaking out. Actors are yelling at each other. People think they're going to die. <laughs> Up comes David Prowse in the Vader suit. I've written this book, Fitness is Fun. Maybe I'd like to give you a copy. <laughs> it made me want to get David Prowse's Fitness is Fun book. David Prowse just keeps going on and on about how it took him nine months to write. It's about exercising. It's a, take, it's a textbook on weightlifting. You'd love it, Irvin Kirshner. <laughs> Who does anyone listening have fitness is fun? Please let us know. If you start saying as he goes a little crazy, is it effective for me to tell him to stop if he's been hit? Doesn't it make then the hit make it look like he stopped? No. Okay. Well, I don't think so. Because he will have taken this guy. They hit him. Stop him. If he was going to stop, if I was going to be able to stop him, would stop Chewbacca. Stop. Yeah. Then I would stop him before he killed any more guys. Before the other guys had a chance to even get to to hit him. That's. First of all, why did they hit him? Why don't they just pull their guns on him and blast him? I mean, it's got to be so fast, and I got to stop him so fast for it to work. The other guys won't even have a chance to get over there. Yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe that's true. Okay, put him in. You step forward. You step forward. Wham. Bam. Chewbacca, stop. Stop. Then the other, they can, I don't yeah. know. It's, uh, it's, uh, We're ready to do this first, please, huh? Yeah. yeah. He will already have the gun on him. Yeah. Well, we're just no, we're going to do a rehearsal right through. through. I've never had one rehearsal no, with the dialogue and everything. So the the whole slapping Billy D. Williams thing is only a small portion of a lot of the Carrie Fisher greatness in this book. I don't know if it counts in our 40 things, but I love how Alan Arnold talks about how I think Carrie Fisher, was it during the whole filming of The Empire Strikes Back, was staring at, staying at Eric Idle's house? And Eric Idle was a frequent, from Monty Python, was a frequent visitor of the set of Empire Strikes Back. But there's a one really crazy Carrie Fisher story 
in the book. Yeah, well, because like the Harrison Ford ones, it's fun to read all his talks with Carrie Fisher because she's another one where it's like, you know, it's 78, 79. She's super, super young still. And you can see that Carrie Fisher personality is already there, even though she's a little younger and a little shyer, but that sense of humor and everything is already there. But the craziest thing, and you can kind of, I think, see why maybe she had a hard life from time to time, uh, being a child of celebrity. The craziest thing is what she gets a telephone from her mom, Debbie Reynolds, that she received a tip that there's a threat to kidnap her from the set. Carrie shows up on set with security guards and they mention it. Don't they even later on at the, when she has the like going away party after filming that the like guards are, are like at the party and the Alan Arnold's like, he can tell that the bartender is really a security guard. Yeah. And like when they're filming, there's all this drama about like a book about like Eddie Fisher and all this crazy stuff. And, Again, it's like we said in the beginning, it's just you're a fly on the wall and it's like it's all these actors' lives. You have like serious Harrison Ford talking about all the movies he's done and all the range he wants to show and someone's threatening to kidnap Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill's already got a baby and they don't know if they're going to keep it secret. And David Prowse is thinking about recording an album about fitness singing with a pop group, which probably would have been disco and we really missed out if it never happened. Yeah, because in one of the Harrison Ford interviews, he's talking about how he's getting a divorce. And there's the in the fun part in one of the Carrie Fisher interviews is she talks about how special effects gave Harrison Ford a very good mouth. And he's a very good at kissing. A lot going on, not on set, that you get hints of in this book that at the time things didn't make sense that may may, may mean different things reading the book now. Well, so of course it wouldn't be a making of Star Wars book without plenty of quality Lucas interviews. And Once Upon a Galaxy is chock full of a whole lot of Lucas gold. And I can't imagine reading this in 1980 and not exploding with anticipation (laughs) of the future. Yeah, because again, this book came out in September of 1980 you just spent all summer watching the empire strikes back over and over again and on page 248 in this book alan arnold just asks what's the next chapter going to be george lucas the next chapter is called revenge of the jedi it's the end of the particular trilogy conclusion of the conflict that began star wars between luke and darth vader revolves that situation once and for all i won't say who survives and who doesn't but if we're ever, ever able to link it together, you'll find the story progresses in a very logical fashion. That would be enough to kill me right there. Like, what? Revenge of the who? What? Yeah, just the just the title would have been enough without knowing that it's the, the epic conclusion to the Skywalker saga. <laughs> the final battle. Get ready. And, and just to make it worse, too, is a couple times throughout the book, there are times Lucas is throwing out how... There's now three trilogies. There's nine films. He says he had written treatments for the for the two trilogies, but after the success of the first film, he added a third one. And later on, talks about how the first trilogy is about young Ben Kenobi and Luke's father, but no real mention of what is in the new trilogy, the sequel trilogy, which. Is always going to be the question of did, did the treatments that Disney bought were those brand new or were those a variation on what he wrote 
in what, 70, 77, 78? Who knows? We'll never know. Nobody will know. Somebody knows. Not us. That's okay. I'm fine not knowing. So another fun thing in this book is kind of the talk about spoilers and things that we talk about all the time these days with movies and just how there are people who are getting a hold of unlicensed stills from the movie and they're selling them in sci-fi places and underground bookstores, how people are buying like copies of the trailer and all kinds of madness that is kind of, we take for granted of that stuff today because it's everywhere. Back in the day, you used to have to go to an underground bookstore to get your Empire Strikes Back spoilers. You had to go to strange places. You had to do a secret knock on the door. Oh, I got a picture of a picture of a scan of one frame of the trailer. I'll take it. So again, another thing with uh, how not much has changed. One day on the set, the new issue of Variety shows up with a front page headline that The Empire Strikes Back is over budget in that the movie is basically doomed and it's got to make so much money to make anything back and there's no way it's going to happen and the sequel to the most successful film of all time is going to be a giant flop. Nothing has changed. Yeah, I guess 40 years really isn't that long, is it? (laughs) Here we are. So another great part is they talk about a kid from the fan club who won a trip to the set. Is that what it was? Yes, Matthew Pack. He won a Star Wars fan club competition, and his prize was a trip to London. He was there on the stage's opening day, and the quote was, he was overjoyed. Well, that actually, I remember that now. That was an interesting page because in addition to just the guy winning the fan club, it was kind of the idea that that Lucasfilm built a giant stage at Elstree Studios so that they could film what the Hoth hangar and ultimately I think Dagobah was that stage and just how there was no, they were so kind of over budget and behind and just busy working. They didn't even stop to have like a party or a big ceremony to like, christen this new big studio they just like okay it's built let's get to work but that one kid was like the only one who got to celebrate its opening where is he now he's <laughs> tell the stories i hope he's hanging out with the kid that won the return of the jedi contest <laughs> no no one else knows what it feels like to be the, the luckiest person in the world tell me where do you go to school Downtown. Round Hill? Is it a good school? Yeah. How do you do in school? You're a pretty good student? Yeah. You are? Sometimes. Sometimes. I know I have trouble, too, because I went to school on Tatooine. Remember the desert planet? There's one thing I want to ask you, because I'd like to ask everybody this question. Uh, some people have favorite parts, you know, in Star Wars, and hopefully they'll have favorite parts in Empire Strikes Back. You know, one person might like that pub scene where they had all the creepy crawlies. Remember all those weirdos? Yeah. What was your favorite part? Uh, when from the boat. When? From the when? Oh, when we, the Princess Leia and Luke swung on the rope. I liked that too. It was a lot of fun. I was pretending I was Robin Hood and everybody, all, all the heroic guys rolled into one character. That was fun. But there are things that happen in The Empire Strikes Back that are pretty amazing. R2's going to let us watch a little clip of it right now. R2? 
so next there's some some great little bits with Alec Guinness in the book, but probably the best one is him talking about all the letters he gets and a particular letter he got from a, a female fan, I think in, in America, right? I think that's where all the crazy letters were from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alec Guinness says, you'd be surprised how many people with problems think Ben Kenobi can solve them. For example, there's a lady in LA whose marriage is in shreds who wants me to come and stay with them. The dotty ones who want a guru in the house are all mainly in California. <laughs> so, so, that elegant sass there. I just love that the person in California is marriages and shreds. I need Obi-Wan Kenobi in my house 24 hours a day. <laughs> you must do what you feel is right, of course. It makes sense to me. Go tell him your feelings. Tell him you don't like the way he talks to you. It's not right. I don't even think I can count the amount of times each week. I'm like, well, what would Qui-Gon do today? If only I could call Qui-Gon on the phone and he could come sit here. So it totally makes sense. (laughs) The next one is, I think one of the other really cool, just little bits of the book is Irving Kirshner talking about the Luke and Yoda in Yoda's hut scene and just how much that scene is the heart of the picture and really getting into the part after that, where Luke decides to go save his friends and how that decision to leave his training and go save his friends is either a sign of Luke's strength or a sign of Luke's weakness, depending kind of in true star Wars fashion on your point of view. Hmm. Now, what does that sound like? Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if when Ryan Johnson was sitting down to write the screenplay for The Last Jedi, did he have a copy of this book? And did he just read, like, fast forward through the Irvin Kirshner parts of, like, well, this is a similar situation. I'm going to read everything Kirshner said about it. And there's a lot of little nuggets in what Kirshner was saying that are pretty clearly in The Last Jedi. Yeah, the exact quote, which is great, is he says, This decision is the element of ambiguity that makes the picture's content so rich. Whatever Luke decides can be interpreted in two ways. His decision can be seen as a character's strength or a character weakness, depending on how you look at it. What is moral, to try to save the world or to attempt to rescue the friends closest to your heart? That is the moral dilemma and the root of the matter. Uh, it sounds like Last Jedi to me. So. <laughs> well, it sounds like Star Wars. I mean, it's the best Star Wars. Again, we've said this a million times, but it is funny when you think there was only the one movie and a lot of the the core kind of heart of the saga didn't wasn't even there yet until Empire kind of brought the extra layer to the story that's now carried over into the to prequels and sequel movies. It's all true. He'll finish what he begins. I won't fail you. I'm not afraid. You will be. You will be. The next bit can be described as Mark Hamill has a snake in his pants. You can interpret that two ways. But only one way would be correct as far as I know, and that was during filming while they were in Dagobah, a real-life snake crawled up Mark Hamill's pant leg and 
freaked him out a little bit. It was all about the image. You know, you can't say that Mark Hamill is having a baby. He's got a snake in his pants. It's all. That's the story they ran in Tiger Beat. Yeah, so moving on back to Harrison Ford. At one point, Alan Arnold makes the mistake of calling Han Solo one-dimensional, which Harrison Ford doesn't really like too much. Since this was, in a sense, a cardboard character to which you gave flesh and blood, uh, that part of you which needs this uh, 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 greater sense of creativity is not going to be satisfied in this kind of film. So why... Play it again. No, you no, told me to no, ask you that No, question. no, that's wonderful. That's a hard question. And the answer is that you got it all wrong. It's not a cardboard character for me at all. It's as real as, uh, as anything else. There's the, the, I, I never knew that the character only had two dimensions until critics told it to me. I don't play... I mean, I don't play the the third dimension mm-hmm. because it's not the, the it's not the author's it's not the director's yeah. choice to do that, but it's there. It has to be there. It's it's I I don't have to play it because it's me. It's part of uh, of me, and the simpler I keep myself, the more it shows. Mm-hmm. So this is this is much an acting job to doing something as seemingly simple as this as any other. I don't find this any less. I find this. Maybe more fun than many, but I don't find it any less or more difficult than than others. the The most difficult thing is trying to communicate with people who uh, who who make it difficult to to communicate, who put somehow ego between you and uh, and and an idea. and And that that doesn't happen here because there's no pretension. This is a simple kind of uh, enterprise. And, and as such, it, it, uh, the motives of people involved are generally pretty, pretty straightforward. And I enjoy the experience of working on this film. And I enjoy playing this character. That's it for me. I mean, I've had the opportunity to do other things in between, so it doesn't have the, it's not the only stamp in my passport. But it's, but it's, uh, it, I, don't, I cannot conceive of a negative aspect to doing this film. That's the thing. We're coming to it again later, but it's the the mystique always around. Well, well, Harrison Ford hated playing Han Solo, and he hated it, and he wanted him to die, and all. Then, but also, he's not going to stand by when Alan Ar- Alan Arnold calls him one dimensional, and he was just like, "Why can't I be in the radio drama playing Han Solo? I am Han Solo." Things are always taken out of context, and people always assume the worst when, in reality. Just because you need a break from something doesn't mean you don't still like it or proud of the work that you did. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Uh, So next, another mirror of the future Last Jedi from the past, Empire Strikes Back. Mark Hamill and Irving Kirshner didn't always get along and had some disagreements about the character of Luke Skywalker. Never heard about that before. <laughs> what does that sound like? Yeah, More drama on the carbon freezing set. Eventually, their disagreements kind of moved on from character discussion to just full-on temper tantrums between the two of them. And what happens? They have a big blowout. 
basically the way Mark Hamill tells it is that Irvin Kirshner told him not to make a certain facial expression. And Mark Hamill said that he didn't do it. And Irvin Kirshner said, yes, you did. And then Irvin Kirshner says, well, just go see the movie and you'll see what you did. And Mark Hamill said, I don't even want to see the movie. Irvin Kirshner says, really? You're not going to go see the movie? Cut the lights, cut the camera, cut everything. Why shoot it? Mark doesn't want to even go and see it. Things kind of came to a boiling point for a little bit between Irvin Kirshner and Mark Hamill. And again, the second movie in the in the series, the follow-up to a very popular one and expectations on what the characters should be doing and who's doing what and it's you know it's like reading this book it's it's one of those things where you have to put it down every once in a while and just be like wow really whoa yeah and now whenever you watch the end of empire or whenever they're on the carbon freezing set on bespin it's like oh that set looks so cool and then you think about this and how angry everyone was because it was so hot and loud and and steamy in there everything was steamy <laughs> so more more Mark Hamill fun. There's a part where they're kind of just talking about money, and Mark happens to you know mention how nice it was of Lucas to give them all the points on Star Wars, and Alan Arnold asks if he's rich, and are you into? Uh, do you give way to buying impulses? And Mark says how he's not into foreign sports cars or other exotic things, but he says. I do give way to impulses, but they are usually for ridiculous things like marionettes. Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill's going to Mark Hamill. Even in 1978, 79, we're not sure. He just got his big residual check from Star Wars, and he's going to blow it all on puppets. That's why we love him still. So it wouldn't be an amazing book with amazing stories without some wonderful Marsha Lucas tidbits, which we can never get enough of. Well, and what's so great about this is this is a story you've seen in interviews over and over again. But I feel like this is maybe the first time the story was told. And it's slightly different than we've heard it in the present. Uh, basically, it's about Alan Arnold's talking to George Lucas. And he's talking to him about the non-human characters. And George Lucas says how Chewbacca was inspired by Indiana, his Alaskan husky. We've heard that. But he talks about how his wife drives a little station wagon and the dog sits on the front seat next to her and is bigger than she is. So the original story is now Chewbacca's inspired by Marsha driving around with Indiana. And the later version is Lucas driving around with Indiana because, I guess, broken-hearted Lucas refuses to talk about <laughs> Marsha. So the story kind of changed, but it's really interesting going back and kind of reading the original inspiration. And there's a great part where he talks about how she gave him a hard time because there was a dog in American Graffiti and Lucas didn't use Indiana. But he says in his defense, it was a night scene, so he wanted a white dog. But he says, my wife is very upset that I didn't put my own dog in the movie. So I said I'd put Indiana's spirit in the next one. And that's how the Wookiee came into being. Secrets. <laughs> George Lucas secrets. You strip away the legends. Look at look at the deeds. So more Mark Hamill stuff that sounds eerily familiar. There's a part where he's talking about Yoda's line, no, there is another. And he's completely convinced that that is in the movie for the possibility of George Lucas wants to write him out of the story and that 
Revenge of the Jedi could be about someone completely else. Maybe he'll only show up at the end of one of them. I don't know. George is is uh, very clever in the sense that uh, he he's not going to make any of us do another one in the series against our will. I, this is very classified information, but for instance, Harrison. Uh, wasn't sure if he wanted to do the next one and it's still undecided whether he wants to or not and so they found the way of right. doing away with him and yet keeping him he's in a perfect state of hibernation says Billy but what they've done with me is when Obi-Wan, when Alec Guinness says to Yoda he is our only hope Yoda shakes his head and says no, no, there is another there is another so they're not going to let me become Sean no. Connery. And that is very, very perceptive. <laughs> but, that, I mean, that does seem like, you know, the leaving Han frozen in carbonite was kind of a thing because Harrison didn't know if he was going to come back, right? He, he, didn't, he hadn't signed on for three at that point. So if that was real, is Mark Hamill just imagining it? Or was that, yeah, an out for them if maybe Mark Hamill didn't want to come back? Because that's kind of what they were talking about in the article is, you know, you're – as he's growing as an actor, is he going to want to come back for a third movie? Because in 1978, how many people did three movies? Unless you were Sean Connery making Bond movies. Uh, but another Last Jedi kind of linkage here is they're talking about, you know, could you even have the movie without Luke? And Mark Hamill says, you never know. Luke can remain a legend without ever appearing again. All legends aren't living ones. It's the legend that lives on, not necessarily the character. Kind of sounds like a movie I've seen. Eerily familiar. Can't put my finger quite on it. Was Mark Hamill mad that he wrote his own storyline for Last Jedi (laughs) and didn't realize it? Do you think Ryan Johnson just had like a beat up paperback in his back pocket? And he's like, well, well, Mark, uh, let me turn to page 234 here. And here's your quote. Yeah. I'm just doing what you told me to do in the book, Mark. Strike me down in anger and I'll always be with you. Just like your father. So this is a fun one. Alan and Irving Kirshner go to Gary Kurtz's house. Gary Kurtz and his wife are not there. They're somewhere else. And Kirsch basically goes through their record collection, playing tidbits from different records, grabs a big stack, and they leave. Alan Arnold doesn't know what's going on until Kirsch explains he's putting together a temp track for John Williams for the film. I just like wonder what's in Gary Kurtz's record collection. Like, was the temp track, jazz? What well, sounds like it was all classical music. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But I, I still I want to know what's in Gary Kurtz's vinyl collection. That there should have been a chapter where Alan Arnold just lists every album in the Kurtz family record collection. That's what we really that's want. What we, that's what we need. Yeah. But I found that really interesting. I never realized that there was a temp track for Empire. Like we've heard the stories of the temp tracks for the original Star Wars because they didn't know what the music was going to be. But by the time they did Empire, I think I'm just used to the prequel movies where it sounds like Lucas just let. John Williams go nuts, but maybe for Empire, I guess they did have a temp track. 
Yeah, so getting towards the end of the book, there's some really quality Ben Burt, John Williams stuff in there, right? Yeah, just when you think, hey, where's Ben Burt? Ben jumps out of the bushes. But what's really interesting is, and this is another one of the things where this book's kind of raw, is it kind of starts out with Ben Burt being a little annoyed because there was, I think, a meeting with Lucas and Kirsch and Gary Kurtz basically going through and spotting the film with John Williams to figure out where they wanted the music to be. And at that time, Ben wasn't invited because of whatever, but he was disappointed because he has strong feelings about sound effects and the sound design being created in conjunction with the score, as opposed to being tacked on independently And what I thought was really interesting with this is this comes up again in, was it the Revenge of the Sith documentary? Because there's some, there's tension there of should the score be louder or should the sound effects be louder? That just jumped into my head reading this because that's, I mean, it's a very Ben Burt thing to, to happen, but just what is more important at a certain point in a movie and can you design them in a way where they don't have to compete. You don't have to turn one down to turn the other up. Cause he kind of goes into talking about when he worked on invasion of the body snatchers, which this kind of makes me, I never actually saw that version. I kind of want to watch it now. Cause he talks about the, the guy who did the score. It was his first movie score. So they actually worked together on making sure the sound effects in the score were developed concurrently and worked together as opposed to being two things that were just layered over top at the end. Yeah. Ben Burt's work on invasion of the body snatchers is fascinating. And when I rewatched that a few years ago, three, four years ago, I had no idea Ben Burt did the work on that and seeing his name in the credits blew my mind. So yeah, moving on to John Williams house, something we've all wondered about what's going on inside. What's the book have to say about the inside of Johnny Williams house? <laughs> Uh, well, they, Alan Arnold gets to his house. Apparently, it's immaculate, and John Williams apologizes for the mess because he's remodeling his music room or something. And it sounds like it's John Williams is John Williams all the time, and he has a really clean house that he's embarrassed of it being so dirty. Sorry about the mess, baby. I'm just. I had a big, I had a roaring party last night. But they do reiterate the fact that another thing, I, I think I've heard this, but it didn't really sink in until reading the book, that he wrote the score for Empire in pretty much three months. He started in November and was done by end of January. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. George was right about the idiom of the music and the picture. I mean, he didn't want, for example, electronic music. He didn't want futuristic cliche outer space future centuries kind of noises he felt since the picture was so original and it's the different creatures places unseen sights unseen noises unheard of and all the rest of that the music should represent should be should be on a on a fairly familiar emotional kind of visceral gut level it led me to the the stylistic direction that i went to in 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 the star wars score which is in the first instance tonal it's traditionally orchestral. I mean, there are no electronic instruments. There's nothing synthesized in it. It's all acoustic and natural, and the music could be played in an auditorium just the way one hears it in the film. But I think the music relates to the characters and their human problems, and, and 
even when they're Wookiees or whatever they are, you know. So, closing it out, we've got some some rapid fire, chunky bits from Once Upon a Galaxy. Gabe, what have we got? At one point, Alan Arnold's talking to Irving Kirshner about the uh, romantic tension in the movie and would kids get it? And Kirsch talks about how his son was into girls when she was not when he was nine, and he would talk to girls on the phone when he was ten. What goes on in the Kirshner house? I don't. I don't want to know. George Lucas was almost paid $100,000 to direct a movie called Lady Ice instead of uh, working on Star Wars. What could have been? With my movie, Lady Ice. George Lady Ice Lucas. <laughs> you know George Lucas, the director of Lady Ice. Does George Lucas even like ice in water? I would say no. He just likes cold water. The ice just slows him down. <laughs> <laughs> There's a part where they're talking about Bestman and the Ugnaughts, and they refer to him, them as the Hogmen, which they are, little Hogmen, except for, uh, who's the cousin? Uh, God, what, yeah, the, what, what, the tall what? human cousin, Ugnaught, he's not a Hogman. Random tidbits from Paul Hirsch. They shot 120 hours of footage for Empire. They printed 60 hours of that, and then... We're trying to edit that down to 110 to 120 minutes. And ultimately, what's Empire like? 130 minutes, something like that. Is there anything cool in that other 60 hours of footage? 60 hours. I'd buy a ticket. Maybe 30 hours of it is just the Wampa trying to break through the ice wall. Fine with me. Another fun one, Alan Arnold's talking about merchandising and all the Star Wars stuff that exists. And... He has a great little paragraph here of, If you wish you could wash with Star Wars soap, soak in a Star Wars bubble bath, dry yourself with Star Wars towels, slap on a little Star Wars perfume, put on Star Wars slippers, and read by a Star Wars nightlight before getting into Star Wars pajamas and going to bed between Star Wars sheets in a room decorated with Star Wars wallpaper. And if you couldn't do that in 1978... Nine or 80, you definitely can do that now. So I don't know if he was saying that was a good or bad thing, but it's a real thing at this point. And his name is Steve Sansweet. He does it every night. And finally, closing it out, if you have the physical paperback version in the middle of the book, there's two sets of wonderful black and white behind the scenes photos. There's Phil Tippett animating a Tauntaun, just classic stuff. There's uh, an unnamed ILM person working on 21B. There's one photo of George Lucas looking very close at Yoda's face. And my favorite black and white photo in the paperback is a photo of Gary Kurtz in Norway with his wonderful beard covered in snow. So we had cold Chewbacca covered in snow. And in this photo, you can see Gary, Gary Kurtz covered in snow. And now if we ever get a Gary Kurtz action figure, they can do a second version where it's cold Gary Kurtz and just paint a little snow on his beard. Somebody better be cosplaying 2022. You've got two years to grow that beard. And it'll take that much time to grow a Gary Kurtz beard and get a little snow on it. And you're all set. If there were any uh, Gary Kurtz people dressed up at Chicago Celebration, they got the little snow in their beard probably waiting in line for... One of the panels outside. I didn't see any Gary Kurtz cosplayers, but we better in 2022 or else, I don't know, I'm leaving immediately. Well, that is 40. It could have been more than 40. We don't even know. We're delirious at this point. 
But 40 things for the 40th anniversary of Empire from the incredible Once Upon a Galaxy, a journal of the making of the Empire Strikes Back. If you can, get yourself a copy of this book because every Star Wars fan should have it, in my opinion, because it's it's just an amazing little piece of history. Maybe one day it'll come back out again. I kind of doubt it, but maybe it will. Yeah, it's a good read. It's a fun read. It's a Star Wars classic. And yeah, if you can find a copy, it's definitely worth your time. It's not super long. It's what, like 200, 200 pages, something like that? But it's, yeah, it's just chock full of Empire Strikes Back gold. They should have made the book look like a little treasure chest. <laughs> Maybe when it gets reprinted. The Star Wars saga began, and Kenner continues the excitement. Tauntaun Hoth Wampa and action figures each sold separately. Han Solo! Hell, it's got Luke! Wampa! Watch it, Tauntaun! Gotcha! Tauntaun comes with an open belly rescue feature. You'll be okay, Luke, as soon as I chase away that thing! Wampa! Tauntaun Hoth Wampa and other action figures each sold separately from Kenner's Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back collection. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Podcast reviews, you know the deal. If you are listening on some sort of Apple thing, when you're done listening, leave us a little review. Write something nice so we can read your review on an upcoming show. And you probably hear other podcasts talking about it. It helps the show in some way. Like it moves us up. So if somebody searches Star Wars, like maybe Blast Points will come up because Apple thinks people like it because they give it reviews or something. We don't know how it works. Nobody knows. But the bottom line is we love reading those reviews. We really do. And after that, make sure you check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, sign up for the Super Chill Group. You won't be disappointed. It's like a little Star Wars celebration in the Chill Group every single day. I don't know. Maybe Jedi Club is coming back sometime soon. Maybe. Who knows? It could happen. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon where every month we're doing bonus episodes. We're going to have another bonus episode later this month. And Mandalorian Season 2 is going to be starting up. It's going to be crazy over there on the Blast Points Army. And we've got to give a shout-out to the new members of the Blast Points Army this month. And that is a huge thank you to Jordan, Richard, and Philip. Thank you. 
Thank you all, and thank you to all the members of the Blast Points Army for your incredible support. We appreciate it so, 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 so much. But that about wraps up episode 232 here. Saga year, Empire Strikes Back, another saga year down. But don't be sad, because next week, it's Ewok month. So maybe you will be sad, and we'll be sad that you're sad. (laughs) Get your affairs in order. Make sure you have a will. Drink a lot of water, because it's going to be a lot of Ewok movie talk for the next few weeks. September's a long month. And we've gotten to the the heart of Blast Points. It's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view, how much we're going all in on Ewok Month. Next week is all about Caravan of Courage. So you might need some courage. (laughs) We're looking forward to it. We've We've been looking forward to it for a long time. So that's next week. Ewok Month begins. But yeah, thank you everyone so much for listening. And we'll talk to you then. Bye bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. are disappointed. Consumers looking for an escape into fantasy this summer will have the last word. Left me confused. <laughs> Didn't understand any of it. Special effects were tremendous. Really enjoyed it. Oh, I thought it was pretty good. I didn't like the ending. It could have been a better ending. It's a nice beginning to a new religion. It was fantastic. I like that. Force be with you. The big question mark is whether the Force is still strong enough to make the Empire successful as Star Wars. If not, the future of the whole series could be lost in space. Gene Cubison, News 8, East San Diego. May the Force be with all of you!